Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. So this is season two, episode three, and today we have Rakesh Popat talking about myeloma. In this episode, we talk to him about why myeloma patients have renal problems and all the problems that come with the lytic lesions in the spine and cause a lot of problems in the wards for patients and staff to manage. We talk about myeloma being on a continuum of different plasma cell disorders and cover some of the differences between them. And then we spoke a little bit more about research and what there is to look forward to as well with the disease that, you know, patients are treated with basically lifelong. And Sonia? I wasn't here for this recording, so uh, I'm looking forward to listening to this, especially the advances in myeloma, because when I started in haematology, myeloma was, you know, it was, was high-dose melphalan, it was awful side effects and incurable disease. Debilitating. Debilitating, yeah. lots of side effects, patients with back braces. So to hear that there's advances is, is really exciting. Survival outcomes are improving at the fastest rate of almost any other cancer. So it's a really exciting time. There are a lot of novel uh, immunotherapies, targeted therapies that are now making patients survive longer and with better quality of life. So I'm definitely looking forward to this one. Hi Rakesh. So today you've come to talk to us about myeloma. Um, we know myeloma is a blood cancer arising from the plasma cells. Could you start by telling us what plasma cells are and what goes wrong? Okay, so plasma cells are a normal component of the blood system and their main role is to produce antibodies. Antibodies are a key component of the immune system and are very important in terms of fighting bacteria and viruses. The antibody production is actually a very complex process which starts off when you're a baby and gets more and more developed as time goes on as into an, an adult. Now these plasma cells sit within the bone marrow having moved down there from the thymus and their role is to produce lots and lots of antibodies to target lots and lots of different bacteria or virus that the body may encounter. In multiple myeloma something has gone wrong with the plasma cells and this is typically a mutation or some sort of what we'd call a translocation between two or more different chromosomes. The net effect is that these plasma cells become cancerous, they become deregulated and they grow and they proliferate typically within the bone marrow uh, environment. And when that does happen you get an awful lot of one type of plasma cell. The net effect being that when you measure a myeloma patient's blood you detect what's called a paraprotein. And a paraprotein is one particular type of antibody. So instead of having this diverse range of antibodies which can fight infections, you get one type of antibody. And in fact, the plasma cells, or I should say the clonal plasma cells, they suppress the healthy plasma cells, which means that you reduce the production of normal antibodies. So if you do see a myeloma patient on the ward or the clinics or wherever you may work, you will see that they are more prone to infections and that's because of this impaired production of antibodies which you get compared to the normal individual. And, and how do they suppress healthy plasma cells? That's a very complex answer to give. Essentially um, the plasma cell sits within the bone marrow and we talk about the bone marrow microenvironment so it nestles very closely into bone marrow stromal cells and they are nurturing cells. They protect the plasma cell, they release cytokines or chemicals to allow these plasma cells to grow and divide. Now by that integration or interplay between the plasma cells and the microenvironment you then get suppressive signals which then suppress and cause bone marrow failure. So that's why that happens. So how might a patient present with myeloma? 
The commonest presentation with myeloma is back pain. And that in itself is a reason why myeloma is such a difficult cancer to diagnose and why myeloma is one of the conditions where there's such a major delay in diagnosis. Myeloma typically affects uh, people over the age of 75. The peak incidence is actually 80 to 85. Now, if you just think about how many elderly people you know who have back pain, that's a lot of people. So you're thinking about an elderly person going to see a GP with back pain and they will, of course, manage them in the normal way. Um, and this tends to lead to a number of delays in the diagnosis of multiple myeloma occurring. So by the time they are diagnosed, it, is that true to say that the disease would be quite advanced? So typically when we see patients, they've gone through a number of months of being seen by a GP, maybe being referred on to a physiotherapist or an osteopath, and through a quite a long pathway they come to see us. And you're quite right, they often have more skeletal and bone problems and perhaps a bigger degree of bone marrow failure than otherwise we would have seen. So this is actually a, a large piece of work that we're, we're doing as part of the Myeloma community in collaboration with Myeloma UK, which is a patient-focused charity, in order to try and improve the education of general practitioners, alert them to red flag symptoms, um, and just push up the awareness of myeloma. Because what you've got to remember with myeloma is that it comprises of 2% of all cancers. And so people aren't familiar with it in terms of a, a cancer diagnosis. And the route to early diagnosis and what we hope will be a better outcome is all about knowledge and education. Is there any other red flags? So in terms of back pain, if we just talk about that a little bit more detail, it's pain that does not go away. So typically the back pain elderly people get, they get stiff in the morning and it gets a bit better when they move around. This probably gets worse as you move around. Other red flag symptoms would be numbness or tingling in your feet or in your hands, which might be suggested that the, the back spinal problems are causing problems with the nerves. Recurrent severe infections would be another red flag symptom or feeling excessively tired which might be a symptom of anemia or bone marrow failure. And is it still the CRAB acronym for some of the other symptoms that might sort of help you diagnose or, or suspect myeloma? Yeah, so, so CRAB was the initial ways of diagnosing myeloma, CRAB being hypercalcemia, renal impairment, anemia and bone disease. But we've moved on since then. So we now have a number of biomarkers of malignancy, which are now also criteria for diagnosing myeloma. The rationale being is that we don't want to wait for someone to develop renal failure before we say that they have myeloma when we can see that they almost have it. So the new biomarkers of malignancy for myeloma are if you were to perform a whole body MRI scan on someone with suspected myeloma, if we were to see focal lesions on that MRI scan, we would call that myeloma. If the serum-free light chain ratio was over 100, then they are at high risk of renal failure. In fact, the data suggests that 80% will develop renal failure within two years. So we would call that myeloma and intervene. And the final biomarker is more than 60% plasma cells in the bone marrow because then you will develop bone marrow failure. And actually what this is all about is that myeloma is one end of a spectrum of disease. MGUS is the precancerous condition which is incredibly common in the community with elderly people, has a 1% risk of transformation to myeloma. And then there's an intermediate phase, which is called smouldering myeloma, which has a much higher risk of developing into myeloma. It's initially quite low, but you can get high-risk myeloma, where the risk of transformation is 50%. And it's that group of people who we've got to pick up and intervene before they get kidney failure. 
Do you mind just saying what MGUS stands for? Sorry, yeah. MGUS stands for monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. You sort of mentioned some of the, the types of paraproteins that might be evident. So what's, what is different about the disease based on what sort of protein is being created? How is that for the patient? We've kind of moved away from that notion of paraproteins having signifying a different disease. So we used okay. to not talk a lot about that. Mm-hmm. And we used to say, for example, that IgA myelomas were uh, associated with more bone and skeletal complications. Now, just to uh, say that IgM paraproteins are typically associated with Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemas and not with multiple myeloma. IgM multiple myeloma is incredibly rare. But typically, in terms of IgG and IgA myelomas, they behave almost the same. It's the genetic differences which pave the way to a different outcome. Okay. With light chain myeloma, however, you need to be careful because once your serum-free light chain is over 500, then there's a risk of renal failure occurring. And once they're over 1,000, then there's a significant risk of renal failure. So those ones you have to watch out for. And you should check their urine for Ben Jones protein. If they had a high protein output, then that gives you a high risk of renal failure. Is there a different way of treating patients depending on what they have? No. So at the moment, we're treating myeloma as one size fits all, which is clearly not the optimal way of doing it. And that's a source of lots of research. But all myeloma patients will typically be treated the same, irrespective of their type of myeloma. The only way that we change their treatment is based on their age and frailty. So for a younger patient, we'd give them a stem cell transplant. For a more elderly patient, we wouldn't do that and we'd give them more low-dose chemotherapy. And uh, I know you've said that it's commonly a disease that's diagnosed in the older age group. Mm. On the wards, we've seen a few patients that have been quite young. Um, With those patients, does it have a poor outlook because it might be more aggressive because they're younger or is it the same? No. In fact, prognosis doesn't particularly correlate with age. And if you look at the data trends that have been happening recently with some of the new drugs that have become available for for myeloma, the younger patients are doing better. And that's because they can tolerate the treatment, so they're gaining the most benefit. The, The major problem we have in myeloma are the elderly patients. They're frail, they have multiple comorbidities, and they don't handle treatment. So just talking about clinical research that, that we're trying to do is that one of the things we'd like to do is to be assessing patients in terms of frailty. There's a number of different frailty scores for myeloma, and I believe that for our elderly patients, we should perform frailty assessments, and then you can more rationally decide how much chemotherapy they can tolerate, because at the moment it's very difficult to understand that. And we talked, um, when we've been talking on the wards, and a question that often comes up from our nurses is that we give autologous transplants. Do we ever at UCH give allografts to myeloma patients? So that is an incredibly controversial area for myeloma. Uh, The overall data, when you pool it all together, shows no sustained benefit for allo transplantation in myeloma. If you go take a step back to the biology, the problem we have in myeloma, unlike uh, ALL, for example, is that the immunogenicity of myeloma cells is less than an ALL cell. So the immune system or the donor immune system won't necessarily recognize the myeloma cells and kill the myeloma cells. What it does is recognize a different body and attacks the body and in the process kills, kills the myeloma cell. The net effect being is that the benefit isn't so great and the toxicity is problematic. However, we do offer allotransplantation, particularly for the younger group, and just, that just talks about the younger group of patients, typically under the age of 40, 
and they would have to have adverse risk cytogenetics as well. And quite often a sibling. Well, the way allotransplantation is moved forward now, we're not restricted to siblings. We are doing unrelated donors um, for, for that. Now, because allotransplantation isn't something that's commonly done, at the moment we refer to BARDS because they are a big centre for allotransplantation in myeloma. So because the numbers are so small, it's best if it's done in one centre. And what, what's the sort of best case sort of outcomes for a young person who is going to be uh, given an allogeneic transplant in myeloma? So, so, the, so the quoting would be uh, a third of patients would die early, a third of patients would have a reasonable survival of about seven to ten years, and then a third of patients would have long-term survival, uh, which may equate to cure potentially, but that would be in excess of ten years. I know there's lots of advances at the moment in haematology for different haematological malignancies. What have we got to look forward to in myeloma in terms of treatments changing? Myeloma is an incredibly rapidly advancing field and we've got a number of drugs which are coming through the Cancer Drugs Fund as a result and we've had a number of FDA and EMA uh, approvals and I hope we will, will get access to these in the near future through the NHS. We're going through an area where immunotherapy has become very important in myeloma. You mentioned CAR T-cells and clearly they're hitting the headlines for leukemia and lymphoma. The story in myeloma isn't quite so good unfortunately. We have got early data and we're certainly running a trial here for myeloma, but the best data for myeloma suggests that the, the response to CAR T cells only lasts for about 12 months, which is disappointing. So some of the other ways of using immunotherapy, and this is an area that we've been working on in our phase one clinical trials unit, is using antibody drug conjugates. So these are the next generation of antibodies which are linked to potent chemotherapy type drugs and are able to target a specific antigen on the myeloma cell and cause cell death. And we were involved in a first in human study, a drug called Belantamab mafodotin, which for a very heavily pretreated population gave a 60% response rate. In fact, our patients at UCH, which we're just publishing, had a 100% response rate. And I have patients who have been in remission for over two years having stopped treatment, which is unheard of in myeloma, because in myeloma, we are giving treatment continuously. Mm -hmm. They very rarely get any breaks. Yeah, this isn't a continuous treatment then. Well, in the first in human study, we were only able to give 16 cycles, which lasted about a year. So then we stopped treatment at the end of the year, and I've got people who've been 18 months, two years, remission uh, since then, and are doing incredibly well. So a fifth or sixth line therapy, it's not something that we tend to see. So I think there's great potency in these drugs. They do have toxicities because these are very potent drugs and this particular agent causes uh, corneal problems which manifest by blurring of vision and photophobia. So that's an area that we're going to do a lot of work with. I have a collaboration with Moorfields Eye Hospital and we've been looking at trying to understand the eye better and ways in which we can try and manage that in a better way. And certainly uh, we're going to be running a number of follow-on studies in the CRF and outside of the CRF to develop this further. So this drug does have breakthrough designation by the FDA and EMEA and the uh, pivotal study will report in December and if that's positive you'll be licensed next year. So when a patient's diagnosed with myeloma um, they're told it's treatable but not curable. Do you think there is opportunity in the future with something like this drug that might cure myeloma? I think that's or where we're we just heading. not know enough yet? Well, I don't think we know enough yet, but, but what, what we're seeing with these immunotherapies, so we've got the antibody drug conjugates, we're now looking at bites, the bite-specific T-cell engages, and of course there's CAR T-cell therapy. 
the problem is that we're using them in the last stages of patients with myeloma. The next few years, we're going to be using them much earlier on, and you're absolutely right. I think if you intervene early enough, that's where you get the best chance. And then just to go back a little bit, when I was telling you about smouldering myeloma, smouldering myeloma or high-risk smouldering myeloma is the perfect condition to intervene. This is before the myeloma cells have acquired their genetic mutations and become more difficult to treat. Now, if you bring a CAR T-cell, or an antibody drug conjugate or a bispecific T-cell engager into high-risk smouldering myeloma, I think you could really stand a good chance of a very long-term remission and who knows, maybe a cure. I suppose it's getting the funding to be able to do all of these things must be challenging. It is. Funding is a major problem. So I, I'm currently trying to bring belantamab mafodotin right up to first relapse in, an, in a study which will be led by UCL. And funding is a major challenge, and it's something that we're trying to work on at the moment. So watch this space. And can we uh, go back a little bit to the sort of some of the uh, side effects that patients might be suffering, kind of around presentation? So I guess one would be the the, the back pain and potentially lytic lesions. And what's what's sort of happening in that sort of in that sort of picture? In terms of symptoms? In, in terms of like, what's the process for sort of uh, bone breakdown? And oh, okay. the, yeah. So uh, myeloma is, uh, is an incredibly interesting disease because of the way that the interaction occurs in the microenvironment, which I alluded to. So the myeloma cells release various cytokines, which alter bone metabolism. So we are naturally in a flux of new bone formation and, new, and bone destruction. That's always happening. There's always remodeling occurring. In myeloma, they release various cytokines, which tips the balance over. So the osteoclasts, which are to do with bone breakdown, are advanced and they are activated. And osteoblast activity, which are the bone formers, are reduced. The net effect is that you get the balance tipped towards osteoclast activity, which causes the bone breakdown and the lytic lesions. So on the ward, you'll probably see that we give Zemeta or Pomidronate to our patients. What that does is that that inhibits osteoclast activity. And so that allows new bone remodeling to occur. And so the bones get stronger. So that's why we always give our patients bisphosphonate therapy. And we've seen some patients who've obviously had potentially fractures in the spine and what there's there's kind of debate, isn't there, about what the best course of action is? Is it conservative management? Yeah. Is it kyphoplasty? And what can you kind of talk us through a little bit about what the, the two arguments would be? So I mean, sure. I'm sure neurosurgeons would love to be in there <laughs> operating. Well, what's the sort of counter yeah. argument to that? So again, this is uh, continues to be an area that's under evolution for myeloma. I think the challenge that we've had when we've worked with orthopedic surgeons and neurosurgical teams is that their main experience with broken spines has been from trauma cases. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about a cancer patient who has multiple lytic lesions throughout his spine, as well as other, other medical problems. And if you think about a newly diagnosed myeloma patient, they may have fractures in their spine, but they may have anemia, they may have thrombocytopenia, they may have a severe lung infection and renal impairment. So there's a whole uh, patient that you have to manage, not just a young patient who had a road traffic accident who's otherwise well. So what we're beginning to experience or learn is that major interventions such as spinal fixation doesn't always work. 
for a number of reasons. The first is the comorbidities and the multiple other problems that we have is that it leads to a, a very long recovery time. In that time, the, the patient is deteriorating and we need to get chemotherapy in to control the, the disease. The second thing is that the quality of the bone can be quite poor which can lead to problems or long-term problems with extensive spinal fixation. So we try and limit spinal fixation to areas where there's bony fragments as a consequence of a fracture, which is impending into the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. You typically you have to operate in that manner. Now, most fractures are as a consequence of myeloma infiltration, and you get soft tissue, which is growing outside of that. That can be effectively managed with chemotherapy and radiotherapy. So then all we have to then do is to make sure that we don't get a spinal deformity. One of the major problems that we've had in myeloma going back a few years is spinal deformities. And you'll see patients who are very stooped forward. They have a very severe kyphosis. That leads to chronic pain and that leads to recurrent infections because of poor respiratory reserve. So we have to prevent that. The way to prevent that is either by kyphoplasty or by spinal bracing. And to some extent, spinal bracing seems to be a very effective measure in retaining the, um, the straightness of the spine and preventing spinal deformities occurring. And just the last thing to say is that the other area that we've been understanding is that myeloma does not only just affect the spine, it affects the sternum as well. And the sternum supports the spine. So if a patient has a spinal fracture and sternal involvement or a sternal fracture, they're at a severe risk of significant kyphosis. So those are the patients that we put in a very high brace. We call that a CTLSO brace. It's incredibly uncomfortable for the patients. And it it means that they need their carers to help them put them on and off. And so it's a real challenge. But it does help prevent spinal deformity. I'm hoping that in the future we can maybe find ways about not using CTLSO braces simply because patients find them so difficult to use and their compliance therefore is challenging. Yeah, it's their quality of life. They find it really difficult. And I think as well when we've had patients like that on the ward and when we go to send them home and they've spent so many weeks, even months in hospital, it's quite daunting for them. And also finding the right support to be able to help put the braces on and off. So it's tricky. Yeah. And can I also just ask about the renal impairment that patients with myeloma can can suffer with? Is that purely because of the amount of paraprotein in the blood causing damage in, in the nephrons? So there's, there's a number of cases, uh, reasons why this occurs, and it's a common question for medical exams, actually. Mm. Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, renal failure occurs in myeloma, predominantly, you're correct, as a consequence of light chain deposition. Um, so as I said, once your light chain's over 500, then that, the risk goes up and over 1,000 is very high. So we call that carcinophropathy, and that's deposition in the kidneys. Um, but also uh, it occurs because patients get bone pain and they take non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So just talking about the pathway with GPs, mm. patient gets back pain, they see a GP, they give them naproxen for a long period of time, and then they may have high light chains but we didn't know because we didn't check for it and then the patient develops renal failure. So we try and avoid non for myeloma patients as a result. The third cause is hypercalcemia. So we know that myeloma causes lytic bone disease, the seepage of calcium into the blood is directly renal toxic. Fourth reason is myeloma infiltration into the kidneys is incredibly rare. You can get soft tissue plasmacytomas which can obstruct renal drainage. And the fifth cause is amyloidosis. So amyloid deposition can occur within the kidneys, 
and amyloid is associated with multiple myeloma. So that's your typical medical multiple choice question. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's your oh, answers right there. Perfect. <laughs> so the double autologous transplants, what's the rationale there? I mean, yeah. it, and uh, I've heard, is it right that it is giving better outcomes compared to just a one one-time transplant? So that's the rationale for why we're doing it, and we will need to audit our data. We've only recently started doing this, but a European uh, myeloma network study uh, reported where patients were randomised to a single transplant or a tandem transplant. And a tandem transplant is when you do the first autologous transplant and then you line them up for a second one approximately three to six months after the first one. Mm-hmm. So clearly you would need to mobilise and harvest enough stem cells for two transplants in one sitting. What they found was that for patients with adverse risk cytogenetics, which is typically those with a translocation of 414 or 17p deletion, that those patients have a adverse risk and would typically relapse early from a first transplant. Um, and so they gain more from a tandem transplant. Now, tip, of course, these patients have to be fit enough to be able to do that, mm-hmm. and we'd have to gauge how they go. But that's the rationale why we're doing it. And the reason why it's particularly important in this country is because we are unfortunately unable to deliver maintenance treatment post-transplantation. So there's very good data for Revlimid maintenance following a stem cell transplant. And Revlimid has a license for that purpose Mm -hmm. and is approved for use in countries outside of the UK. Now, NICE has not yet approved it, mainly because they haven't had the opportunity to appraise that. So despite Revlimid doubling your time before your myeloma comes back after a transplant, or doubling the PFS, we would say, we are unable to prescribe that. So for those adverse risk patients, we need to find another way of maximising their transplant time, and that's where a tandem transplant comes into force. And do you think the Revlimid will get licensed at some point? Is that is it a cost concern? Is so, it... so it is licensed for in Europe. Okay, so it's, sure. it's all to do with Nice, right? Um, and that's a conversation between Celgene who make Revlimid and Nice to be able to come through. I really hope that they can find a common pathway. They have found a common pathway elsewhere in the myeloma treatment pathway, so we use Revlimid now for elderly patients who are newly diagnosed, which we didn't have before. And so I'm really hoping that we can use that maybe in the next year or so. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. No problem. That was great. I'm sorry it's so hot in here. Yeah, it really is. (laughs)